0: And it's not just deacons either, of course, as we learned over a year ago, when I taught through church elders, you need to be very discerning about the leaders you choose to follow. And over the last 18 months as a church family, we've thought through things like church elders, church membership, church discipline, all of these things we realize that if we don't look to the Bible for our wisdom and answers, we can veer off really quickly on how the church is to function how the church is to live out its God-given witness. Friends, anytime we look at any topic away from Scripture, instead of looking to it, we're always going to go off track. Well, tonight it's no different for our topic on church deacons. I mean, what, what do you think happens when a church or a pastor or deacons themselves don't look to the Bible on what God's word says a deacon should do and a deacon must be. Well, typically you'll see four disastrous contradictions that are not supported by scripture of course become normal in a church's life. Such as a gospel-less, Christless teaching ministry, a prayerless people-pleasing pastor, a discontented, divisive, do-nothing deacon, and a non-committed, contentious church member. Friends, anytime we look away from the Bible instead of to the Bible on what a Christian is, what a church member is, what a church elder is, and what a church deacon is, friends, it's not very long before Christ's sheep are starved, and Christ's sheep could even be led astray. What was true in Hosea's day can be still true in our day. Hosea 4, verse, chapter 4, verse 6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. That means we need God's wisdom on this. This is not up for grabs. This is not up for best business practices. This is not even what's popular is what must be done. We've got to look back to God's wisdom on this issue. We need to look to God's word to inform us on how his church is to be built for his glory. So how can we rightly know what a church deacon is? Well, again, we have to do the same thing for every other aspect of the Christian life. We have to look to God. What does Romans 12, verses 1 and 2 tell us? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And tonight we're going to seek to do that by starting the first of three series. And I'm assuming this is being recorded by Caitlin. All right, good. Anyone listening to this podcast? I just addressed you. Uh, We're going to look at this through three talks. You'll see the talk titles come up on the screens if they're working. Talk number one, model servants in the local church. Talk number two will be in two weeks, godly character and efficiency are necessary for the office. Talk number three are answering practical questions about deacons. So on April 3rd, do your best to be here if you're certainly able to, Uh, We are going to have the elders come join me on stage, and we are going to take questions from you from the floor on church deacons. Now, to help facilitate that so it's not random and rabbit chasing, we actually have a box back there. It says answering practical questions about deacons or questions you might have. You just fill out your question. You can throw that in the box. Uh, But make sure, number one, don't put your name on it. Keep it anonymous. Number two, don't put people's names on it that you want to nominate to be a deacon. That's not the point of this exercise. Just your question about the function of a deacon, what are deacons supposed to do, or the qualification of a deacon, what a deacon must be. I'll be answering that latter question uh, in a couple of weeks. Uh, Again, you can read through our Constitution and bylaws that spell out what deacons are called to do at CCBC. Uh, You can also re-listen to the talks on church elders that I gave a year ago. Kind of be reminded again. You can look on the church podcast. You can also on the weekly e newsletter that you get on Tuesdays. I've put together about 20 articles and videos and sermons. You can listen to, you can read, you can watch to dive deeper on this topic, on things that I can't cover in just one or two talks. So use those resources, look in your Bible, listen to tonight, and be thinking again afresh, biblically, what does the Bible teach? on church deacons. So any questions about how we're going to do this moving forward before I move forward? Any questions? Okay. If you have your Bibles, please open to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. If you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 576. 1 Timothy chapter 2. And follow with me uh, this is important when you're studying on church offices or officers, you need to read it in its context to understand where Paul's been before and where he's headed. So, 1 Timothy 2, I'm going to read starting in verse 1 to the end of chapter 3. First Timothy 2, starting in verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher. And an apostle, I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works." I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is God's word. Here we see the Apostle Paul lay down for his young protege, Timothy, of how the church in Ephesus is to function, or as Paul says, behave. In other words, God cares about how the members of his body in the local congregation behave, how they live, how they treat one another, how they serve or lead in his church. He starts off in 1 Timothy 2 verses 1 to 8 speaking about prayer, uh, who we should pray for, why we should pray for them, and he even uses in verse 8, men should be setting the example in prayer being the normal permeating oxygen, if you will, of the local church. Then in 1 Timothy 2 verses 9 to 11, he instructs the women who profess godliness to show their godliness by their modest dress attire their good works, and humble submission to biblical church leadership. There in verse 12, if you look back in 1 Timothy 2, you see a clear establishment in God's word of church order or authority, where biblical headship is given to qualified men to teach and exercise authority over the congregation. And then Paul connects this, this is not a cultural thing, uh, this is not just a temporary thing in Ephesus, but he, he connects it all the way back to creation. And he mentions Adam and Eve, a uh, showing from Genesis 2 that God created man first, then Eve, showing there is an order to creation on how he's going to establish headship and authority in the home as well as in the church. And you can see Paul fleshed that out in verses 13 to 15 in 1 Timothy 2. But then he, he begins 1 Timothy 3. Again, there's no chapter divisions in the original language. Chapter 2 and 3 that just remove that from your mind for a minute. This is one coherent thought that Paul is driving home. He begins with the first of the two offices in the New Testament by mentioning the office of the overseer or the pastor or the bishop as it can be translated. And we learned from a year ago uh, those terms elder, pastor or overseer, they can use interchangeably to refer to the same biblical leadership role. In the local church. Uh, you'll notice that this office of elder is given to some qualified men, according to 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7, Titus 1, 6 to 9, and they must be able to teach. That's one of the most distinguishing marks between an elder and a deacon. They must be able to teach. They must be able to know sound doctrine and communicate sound doctrine so that God's people are built up and God's people are protected from false teaching. They are also to have some form of leadership capabilities. They are to, in verse 5, care for God's church. What kind of care do pastors give God's church? Well, we know the parallel passage from Titus. Titus chapter 1, we went through Titus in the fall. Titus 1 verse 7, Paul says that elders or overseers or pastors are God's steward in his house. They're his manager's they're watching over God's kids until Jesus comes back for his own. But Paul doesn't stop there, does he? He's laid out how men and women are to behave in the household of God. He's laid out the first of two offices of pastoral leadership, but he goes on to that second office, as we see there in verses 8 to 13, which is on our topic tonight, church deacons. And the way I'm going to answer the questions tonight, or the way I'm going to form this talk, is by answering three questions dealing with the function of a deacon. We'll deal with qualifications next time. The function, what are are they to do? So question number one, who are the deacons and what do they do? Question number two, do deacons possess authority? Number three, why does understanding the Bible's teaching on deacons matter? So who are they? What do they do? Do they possess authority, and why does understanding this even matter tonight? And again, friends, to answer those questions, we have to look where first? To the Bible. Not what I think, not what I feel, not what I've always seen, but to the Bible. So, to kind of see where I'm at in the room tonight, I've learned some things through the years. Raise your hand if you've ever served as a deacon in a church before. Raise them high. Come on, be proud. All right, so you see maybe a quarter of the room. Raise your hand if you feel like you've been a member of a church where the deacons, for the most part, functioned in the way you think the Bible teaches. In other words, the deacons deaconed. Okay, so maybe a little less than a quarter. Raise your hand if you've been a member of a church where the deacons, for the most part, did not function in the way you think the Bible teaches. All right, a lot more people. Thank you for your honesty. Now, regardless if you've ever served as a deacon or been a member of a church who had deacons, I want you to spend the next 60 seconds on a piece of paper or on your phone. I want you to answer that question in your own words tonight. Who are the deacons and what do they do? Descriptive words, adjectives, a sentence. How would you answer that question right now based off what you know? Who are the deacons and what do they do? Spend 60 seconds answering that question. All right, you can put your pen down or take a break. I want you to look at those descriptions. I want you to hold on to those because they're going to be great to look back at maybe one day. I want you to see if your description or your understanding of church deacons tonight comes close to any of the descriptions I'm going to say now. Here's what I think the Bible teaches I think we're going to try to look at from Scripture on what church deacons are. These should be up on the screen. Deacons are model servants of the local church. Deacons are exemplary assistants to the elders of the local church. Deacons are happy and helpful problem solvers to meet logistical fiscal and physical needs in the ministries of the church. Deacons are ministry mobilizers who facilitate and organize acts of service in the church. Deacons are peacemaking bodyguards for preserving unity in the church. Well, just ask yourself, how how did you do? Did they line up? Maybe some synonyms there, some Sort of close words, or were they on two different planets? This New Testament office in the local church, deacons are simply this deacons are exemplary servants that model what Christ like humility and efficient service looks like as a Christian. It's really driving home this question. If a new Christian walked into the doors at CCBC and they said, I want to serve, but I've never served before. I'm a new Christian and I want to do it rightly. What should I do? You know what we ought to do? This is what a true deacon is. You see that brother over there? Watch how they serve. You see that member over there? Look how they're serving. Their initiative, their humility, their care. Just follow them around for the next few months. Come back to me if you have any more questions about how to serve. That's really what a deacon is doing. You see, this is initially exactly what Jesus taught his own disciples, right? Look back in Mark with me. We'll get to Mark 9 one day, but Mark 9 tonight would be a good one to think about. Look at Mark chapter 9. Hold your place in 1 Timothy. Hold your place there in 1 Timothy. Mark chapter 9. I want you to look at verses 33 to 35. Immediately after Jesus instructs the 12 disciples about his, really his deadly mission that awaited him on the cross, and he promised to resurrect, uh, Jesus overheard the disciples having an argument, a dispute, a playground scuffle amongst his well-educated and well-trained disciples Who were very slow to understand what Jesus taught, evidently. What do you think these disciples who've been following Jesus now for a couple of years, what do you think they would have been arguing about? What would have ruffled their feathers at this point in their discipleship training? I want you to notice of all the things they're arguing about, which comes right on the heels of Jesus telling them for the second time, I'm going to die. I'm going to be killed. Notice what they're arguing about. Verse 33, And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, He must be last of all and servant of all. Did you catch that? A servant. When you think of greatness, is being a servant the first image that comes to your mind tonight? When you think of greatness, that man or that woman is great. Is being a servant the first thing that naturally comes to your mind. I think if we were honest, it's a celebrity. It's a sports hall of famer. It's a TV show star. It's someone who's healthy and wealthy and popular. That's greatness. But Jesus has a different definition of greatness in the kingdom. It's not about getting first place ahead of others. It's not about outdoing others and drawing attention to yourself. It's it's not about getting yours and getting on with life, but rather true greatness. According to Jesus, is about being a servant of all. Someone who cares about the overall welfare of another, even though it may cost you personal sacrifice and suffering. Even through putting others first, you are willing to put yourself last. Friends, that's Jesus' definition of greatness. The Greek word here in Mark 9, and really where we're going to be in this study tonight, is diakonos. It's the general term that's translated minister or servant 30-odd times in the New Testament. It's used in a variety of ways, so for those of you who like word studies, here's a few examples Matthew 22, verse 13, it's used of servants or attendants to a king. John 2, verses 5 and 9, it was used of a waiter who serves food and drink at a wedding. In Romans 13, verse 4, God calls civil magistrates his servants. In Romans 15, 25, it speaks of someone bringing aid or serving others who are in need. In 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6, Paul calls himself as a minister of the gospel, a minister of the new covenant, or a diakonos of the new covenant. And in John 12, 26, interestingly, Jesus says that all who truly follow him are called his diakonos, his servants. Thayer's Greek lexicon defines diaconos this way, one who executes the commands of another. A.T. Robertson defines diakonos as one running an errand for another. According to some theologians, the term diakonos, every time it appears next to an overseer in the passage of Scripture, it could be better defined as attendance, assistance, or aids. That's why theologian and author Alexander Strout states this, quote, in many contexts, the idea is that of a subordinate carrying out an assignment on a superior's behalf and having full authority to execute the superior's delegated task. So instead of de- uh, defining deacons merely and only as servants, so that is what diakonos means, we should understand it more specifically on how it's defined next to the role of a pastor or an overseer in more of a subordinate role, a service-oriented role. Uh, that means when deacons are deaconing, when they are serving, they are, in essence, assisting and carrying out the leadership direction set forth by the overseers or the elders. That means that deacons should never be like rogue deacons, you know, kind of serving off on their own, doing their own thing for Jesus. According to the New Testament, if you were to serve and fulfill that office, you have a certain boundary, certain lanes, certain jurisdictions that you were called to stay within. Uh, that means that that service should be thought through with the elders' oversight. Again, deacons are model servants who assist the elders, come alongside the elders to help serve the needs of the congregation. In fact, the only two places that Diakonos, when speaking of the office of deacon, is most explicitly clear— is in Philippians 1, verse 1, and 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 to 13. And you'll notice in both passages, guess who was spoken about before and with the deacons? The overseers or the elders. That's significant. That even though we might look at Acts 6 in just a little bit, even there the apostles are present, giving direction, giving leadership, In other words, the deacons, they have their roles defined. They have direction. They have needs that can be met as they are under the leadership of the elders. In both of these places, it's really clear that the deacons are not an isolated body. They're not disconnected from the elders or the church. They are only serving the church within the boundaries and guidance of those that God has entrusted as leaders. Remember, deacons, go back to this. It's very simple. Deacons are what? Servants. It makes it so clear. You don't have to know Greek to know that. It's so clear. Deacons are servants, they are models of humble service underneath the biblical authority of elders as they assist the elders to meet the needs of the congregation. Guys, that is not rock and science, that is clear and right off the pages of Scripture. Now, beyond 1 Timothy 3, which is the two offices that we read earlier, and Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, where it's just a passing introduction, Acts chapter 6 is really the only place in the New Testament we have any kind of hint or example about what deacons did in the early life of the church. So turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. Acts 6, I'm going to look briefly at verses 1 to 7. We'll return back there next time together as well. Let me catch you up to speed if you're not familiar with Acts. In Acts, we see the birth of the church, the expanding of the gospel, the pouring out of the Spirit. And at this point in this New Testament era, the early church is growing. I mean, big time. The membership classes are filled to the brim every time. The baptismal waters were running out of water to use. Many people, in fact, thousands are coming to saving faith in Christ. Read Acts 2, verse 41. Read Acts 4, verse 4. Read Acts 5, verse 14. Good things are happening. God is converting. God is multiplying disciples. Uh, Revival times revival times revival is breaking out in this new covenant age. In fact, even with persecution from the outside and potential hypocrisy creeping up on the inside. And remember Ananias and Savira? You know, God dropped a few members dead because they were getting in the way. People's needs were being met. People were loved and they were cared for. Remember Acts 2.45? They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Acts 4, 34 and 35, there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostle's feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. But friends, make no mistake about it. The book of Acts is not a honeymoon story. Even when you have good gospel growth taking place in the life of a church, that also means growing concerns and potential growing complaints are just around the corner. Look with me in Acts 6, verse 1. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, okay, there we go again, the growth of God's work, a complaint, so if you ever wondered if there are complaints in churches, you know, that doesn't happen at my church. It happens at my last church, but they happen in every church. A complaint about the Hellenists arose among the, against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nic- Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And, notice verse 7, the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Here we see in the book of Acts the first division of labor take place in the New Testament church. The apostles recognized that with all this growth, spiritual growth and numerical growth, that also meant needs were arising. People could fall through the cracks and they realized we've been given a primary task of preaching and prayer. So somebody's got to care for these widows. Somebody has got to see that these needs are met or this growing, beautiful picture of the church could implode on itself if we're not careful of how God wants to do this. And so in their infinite, the wisdom that God gave them, they chose seven men who had Greek-speaking names, which is fairly significant for unity's sake. We'll get to that more next time. Uh, These seven men that the apostles and the congregation approved of were called to serve the present needs of the congregation in Jerusalem. So what did they do? They delegated a task for specific members of that congregation. In this situation, seven men that were full of wisdom and godly reputation to wait on these tables to see that the widows were cared for. Well, did it work? Did this art of delegation, this division of labor, this parsing out what prioritizes some ministers in the church and others carry out other things? Well, look what Acts 6 verse 5 says. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. That's the opposite of complaints, right? the murmuring, the grumbling, the complaints that they saw bubbling to the surface between the Hellenists and the Hebrews had been brought to a solution. The bomb squad had come in and secured the bomb from blowing up the life of the church. Verse 6 says, after publicly affirming and commissioning them through the laying on of hands, verse 7 says, the word of God continued to increase. Friends, God's wisdom is meant to cause peace and growth in the life of his church. If we want to see God's church bear the fruit we see in the New Testament, we have to see his church built in the way he designed it. Otherwise, it's going to implode on itself in due time. Friends, that's the same desire we should have here at CCBC, there are times where we're going to have to face situations where we're not sure on what to do. But there are some wonderful principles here in Acts 6. The leadership observed a problem. They realized that they had priorities that they had to tend to, and these tasks need to be delegated to to see that they were met. This was a beautiful act of God's wisdom and their faith in the Lord. I want you to also notice here, though, Notice that it was a specific need that they were tasked to meet. Did you notice there in verses 2 and 3? He didn't just say set apart seven men to start a committee. Set apart seven men to give the elders a headache or the apostles or to be a rubber stamp or to be a checks and balances. Notice what he said for them to do. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. The Greek word there literally means need or necessary task. Friends, that means that deacons, rightly understood, are task-oriented, service-oriented, need-oriented servants of the local church. They're not a committee. They're not a decision-making body. It's not the house and the senate and the elders and the deacons. That's not the model we see in the New Testament. The leadership identifies the needs and they recommend to the congregation to set apart these qualified members to meet that need. So what kind of task could deacons be responsible for? Well, here's a whole host of them that many churches have adopted over time, such as Deacon of Parking, Deacon of Library, Deacon of Member Care, Deacon of Welcome and Hospitality, Deacon of Digital Media, Deacon of Ushers, Deacon of Finance, Deacon of Ordinances, Deacon of Child Care, Deacon of Youth or College Ministry, Deacon of Sound, Deacon of Buildings and Grounds, Deacon of Security, and friends, that list can just keep going on and on and on and on whenever the needs arise. Now, not every ministry will need a deacon for it. If we did that, we'd have like 75 deacons and like 90 members, and like everyone's a deacon. That kind of doesn't mean anything. But the elders will think prudentially on a particular ministry because of its complexity and a lot of moving parts. It may require a deacon. But other ministries may not. Members who are already serving in that way happily and helpfully can serve and just keep on serving. But the point here I'm trying to make is the deacons, there is a great distinction between the deacons and the overseers. Overseers have been given a management, leading, and teaching task. The deacons have been given a need-based, specifically oriented, task-based ministry responsibility. So, How do you know who is qualified to serve as a deacon? Here's a short summary of what we will flesh out more next time together. But if if someone were to be a deacon, this would be front and center on their piece of paper to tell them, this is what will be required of you. This is what we find that you're qualified in already. A qualified deacon shows a consistent exemplary pattern of godliness, peacemaking, humility, and efficient service in the body of Christ a qualified deacon shows a consistent, exemplary pattern of godliness, peacemaking, humility, and efficient service in the body of Christ, which leads to our next question tonight. Do deacons possess authority? Now, this shouldn't be very hard to answer, but this is really where a lot of division does take place on this topic. In his book, Now That You're a Deacon, author Howard Foshi says this, as a new deacon, you must understand that you have not been selected to an official board to exercise authority in the life of the church. The office of deacon is not an office of authority, but of service. In one sense, deacons have a time-limited, narrow-in-scope, need-specific delegated authority. That means that deacons, like elders, will have terms But if we no longer need a particular ministry in the life of our church, we no longer need a deacon to serve in that ministry. It's time-limited, narrow in scope, and need-specific. Deacons are task-oriented service. Nowhere in the New Testament do we see deacons operate with the same authority or oversight as the elders. Nowhere in the New Testament do we see deacons as a decision-making body. Nowhere in the New Testament are we told that the elders submit to the deacons or the congregation to submit to the deacons. But we are told that the deacons assist the elders and the deacons are called to serve the congregation. H.B. Charles, pastor in Jacksonville, Florida, excellent expositor if you ever want to listen to good preaching on the podcast. He puts it this way. What's the difference between an elder and a deacon? If elders serve by leading, deacons lead by serving. If elders serve by leading, deacons lead by serving. That's a great summary of what I'm trying to help us see tonight. That's why if someone asks you, hey, what's CCBC's church polity, your church government? What's your leadership structure? Here's what you can say. We are elder-led, deacon-served, congregationally ruled. Elder-led, deacon-served, congregationally ruled. Lastly, for tonight, question number three, why does understanding the Bible's teaching on deacons matter? In other words, why are you even here, other than being polite and respectful for me as your pastor, of coming back here tonight to listen to this teaching? Why does this matter? Why does this matter for CCBC? Five very quick reasons. Number one, the glory of God in his church is at stake the glory of God and his church is at stake. What did Paul say in his benediction in Ephesians 3, 20 and 21? Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. Friends, the local church is God's idea. This isn't Ben Seawall's idea. This isn't Grant Trotter's idea. This isn't Jansen Lesser's. This isn't Blake Boyle's. It isn't any of ours. It's his. This is Jesus' bride. The church is the temple of the living God. Friends, no man and no woman has a right to tamper, pervert, distort, or reinvent the wheel when it comes to how his church is to function. Friends, pray that each member of CCBC will grow to care about what God says about his church more than they ever have. May we challenge one another to think less about what we've seen and known and more about what the Bible actually teaches. God's glory is at stake. Number two, the building up of his church is at stake. We're told in Ephesians four eleven to 16 that pastors— are called to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And friends, one of the ways churches grow, not merely numerically, but I'm talking spiritually, into maturity from being baby Christians to oak tree men and women mature Christians is when deacons are setting the example of what ministering is, diakonos, serving is, the church will be built up. The elders are eldering, shepherding through prayer and through teaching, and the deacons are deaconing. They are mobilizing, facilitating, modeling what godly service looks like. Number three, the preservation of his church or church unity is at stake. Again, think about Acts 6. A complaint arose amongst the Hellenists, a need was being overlooked, but the apostles realized. They had a different task that God had given them. A division of labor, the art of delegation, setting apart others who were qualified to meet that that need were important. And friends, we're embodied souls. We're physical and spiritual beings. There's no way that I can meet everyone's need through a sermon. That's impossible. We need spiritual nourishment and we need physical care. We are embodied souls and those needs... Can be often met when elders and deacons are eldering and deaconing because the members will be equipped and mobilized to minister to one another. Number four, the advancement of the gospel is at stake. The advancement of the gospel is at stake. Again, elders are primarily word centered disciple makers and direction shapers of the church. And as we've learned tonight, deacons are primarily problem solvers servants and peacemakers. They preserve the body of Christ by preserving the unity that we share. When a church doesn't have a plurality of elders who actually elder, and when a church doesn't have deacons who actually deacon, guess what? The ministry will not function in a healthy way. It might look peaceful on the outside, but people are dying spiritually on the inside. God would not have spent the time he has in his word if he didn't believe that. And friends, when deacons begin to function like elders, kind of like pseudo-elders, they wear the hat of deacon, but they're basically ruling and managing the church like an elder. Well, friends, that's not biblical. I don't need to give any more reasons for it. As you've seen tonight, diakonos is service assisting, model, humble service underneath the elders serving the congregation. If we try to blur that because we think we're smarter than God, we're going to reap the bad fruits of being more pragmatic than we are biblical. Some might even ask, well then Blake, are you saying that deacons are a lesser office? I mean, you've kind of, demoted my understanding of deacons tonight. Well, in one sense, the diaconate is a lesser office insofar as it's not a role of authority, but of service. Again, deacons play a support role in the New Testament, a subordinate role underneath the leadership of the elders. But it's also important to notice that the role of a deacon is vital to the life of the church. Elders are called to lead, teach, and protect, but deacons are called to serve, support, and assist. Both are necessary for the health of a church, for the growth of the gospel, for the glory of God in his church. And friends, regardless if you ever serve as an elder or a deacon, or you never have an official title, friends, you don't need a title to disciple one another. You don't need a title to serve one another. We'll talk more about this next time, But each one of us has been given a gift to serve one another. Some of us have been given gifts of word-based ministry, and some of us have been given gifts of service-based ministry. 1 Peter 4, verses 10 and 11 would be a great text to look at this week. 1 Peter 4, verses 10 and 11. Lastly, number five, the glory of Jesus Christ as the suffering servant is at stake. At the end of the day... When all is said and done, who is the New Testament deacon ultimately imitating in their service? Well, as Ben brought out for us Isaiah 53 this morning, we learned that Jesus is the suffering servant, the suffering diakonos. In John 13, we see that Jesus got down on his own knee-washing the dirty feet of his disciples as a picture of the filth of sin, of selfishness, of pride, of selfish ambition that so much of us are plagued with from the inside out. Jesus modeled what real service looks like by washing selfish, rebellious sinners' feet. Friends, that was just a preview of what he was going to do at the cross where he took on the wrath of God as he suffered in our place, giving up himself for us in love to save us. Friends, isn't this exactly what Jesus told his disciples? What would mark true servant leadership in their life? Mark ten forty-five. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, whether you become a deacon or whether you are a happy and helpful member without the title serving in the life of this church, Jesus is our perfect example. His humility is what we should aspire to. True greatness is going down. To rise high in the kingdom, you have to first go low to serve all, to be willing to be overlooked and put last for the benefit of others. But friends, when a church as a whole body from the elders to the deacons to the members keeps Jesus, the God-man, the suffering servant, front and center as our example and our Savior, we will have a humble, servant-minded church. We won't even need teachings like this on deacons because we're happy to serve regardless if God gives us a title or recognition for it. It's really what he sees that matters anyway. As one early church father said, Christ became what we are so that we might become what he is. This is the heart of deaconing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day. Thank you for the rich meditation and exposition this morning from Leviticus and Isaiah. Lord, thank you tonight as we've looked at and surveyed the New Testament on what deacons are called to do. Lord, we pray that we would think well about these things. Revisit the Word, read the articles, re listen to podcasts. Help us think biblically about this glorious, humble, service-oriented role of a deacon. And Lord, I pray that regardless if each one of us never aspire to that role, that we would be happy and helpful servants in your kingdom, knowing that true greatness is being a servant of all for your namesake. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.